The Midnight Disease is brought to you by your local Moose Lodge. Providing an almost identical suite of services to the Elks Lodge, the main thing you need to know about the Moose Lodge is that our lodge is bigger, stronger, and more awesome than the Elks Lodge. In the words of Dr. Valerius Geist, Swedes fence their highways to reduce moose fatalities and design moose-proof cars. The Moose Lodge invites you to consider the last time you heard of anyone, Swedish or otherwise, developing an elk-proof car. Yeah, see? That's what's up. Moose for life, y'all. Hit us up at www.themooseisloose.biz. W-A-L-T. It's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Soyuz 017-FET via the Avitis MA-5, the Harrison 32EQ, and the RNC-500. Analog tones on a Friday afternoon in the universe. I hope that your universe is feeling expansive and twinkly on this Friday afternoon. Mine is, I think. I, as always, am so grateful to you for spending this little bit of time with me at the end of your week or whenever you're listening to this. I told you all a few weeks ago about this piece that I did for the Sports Explains the World podcast called Good Company and something that I have been thinking about a lot recently is this idea that the conclusion in that in that piece is that the mandate of the baseball broadcaster is to be good company to the listener above all else it is to be good company and i think there is something so moving about that idea this question of how we can be good company to each other on this journey of uncertainty that we all share, whether that is a journey of uncertainty from inning one to inning nine of a baseball game or inning however long it takes (laughs) to get to the end of a baseball game. But also, we're on an uncertain journey in life just generally. And when you invite a podcast into your ears, you've done so with some amount of intention. And I think it is the mandate of the podcaster to reward or express gratitude for the listeners acting on that intention to try to be good company orally for the duration of the episode. And so that is what I will try to do today. And I just want to express, as always, that I don't take it lightly that you're here. And speaking of which, I wanted to share just like a really beautiful note that I got from a listener this week. And it was in response to my request last week for folks to share their relationships with uh, surrender and this idea of preparation for surrender. So this is from Liz. Thank you, Liz. And Liz writes, 
without realizing, probably because it's happened over so many years, connection has become an impossibly rare phenomenon. It's become a lopsided, unbalancing act performed unwittingly by the starving. What's taken its place, it seems, is an entire society transfixed by the need and craving for attention. During a dark, necessary, and transformative time in my life, a mentor told me that there are once and twice born people. This wasn't a religious idea, but rather a spiritual truth. Jerry, I think Jerry is the mentor that Liz is referring to here, Jerry said that some can live simply in this material world while others are forced through tragedy, loss, addiction, or whatever makes it impossible to live as we once lived. We are forced into a world of surrender and connection. Hugh Prather, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Prather? Hugh Prather once said that a relationship is like canoes in the rapids, sometimes close together, other times farther apart. The point I'm getting at is that I can only live on the surface for so long before the call to drop into the depths for sustenance, inspiration, and a sense of magic and wonder. I suppose that's my midnight disease. When I feel completely alien in this world, when my vision is sepia, it's time. I'm going on and on, all to say I thought I was the only one who doesn't read notes when connecting with another. That sends me back into a self-conscious space that ruins my ability to see another. I'm on a three-day online manager conference right now, and I'm so grateful for the pre-work I did by listening to your midnight disease, knowing that you and your insight has given me the huevos to listen with my heart. Liz, Thank you for this beautiful note. I am so grateful to hear that the Midnight Disease was of service to you in this moment. And I just want to call out, there's so many beautiful lines in this email, but I just want to call out this one in particular. Connection has, quote, become a lopsided, unbalancing act performed unwittingly by the starving. Man, that, that, is, that is such a deep insight, Liz. And I feel a lot of connection with that. We have so many disorienting factors in our lives, most of which live on our phones, I think. We have so many disorienting factors that we don't realize how starved we are for connection until we're so desperate for it that we realize we've forgotten how to do it and we have to and, and we fumble at it a little bit. What is this making me think of? This is making me think of the fact that I sometimes have the impulse to call one of my dearest and oldest friends because I haven't heard his voice in a long time. And I tie myself in knots because I realize I don't have a particular reason to call him. And I think to myself, like, should I text him beforehand and say, hey, I was hoping we could talk about this thing. Um, and then I think, well, that'll that'll sound crazy. And also, I don't really actually want to talk to him about that thing. I, I just want to talk to him. I just want to hear his voice. And I get myself so spun up about this. And I remember at one point I called him over the summer. And this was so heartbreaking. He He picked up the phone and he goes, hey, is everything okay? And I just thought, like, oh, he it, that's how long it's been since I called him, that he thinks something's wrong. And nothing is wrong. I, I just wanted to say hi. And I don't know. That's, that's what comes to mind 
for me when when I read that that connection has become a lopsided unbalancing act performed unwittingly by the starving. I was really starving for connection with him. And he thought my call was coming from a place of emergency because I had let our connection get so fallow. I had starved <laughs> our our connection. So anyway, thank thank you, Liz, uh, for writing, and and I hope that your conference is going great. The other thing that this email made me think about is this idea that it, it it's just all too much sometimes. Modern life is too much sometimes. It's overwhelming. And I read Liz's email this morning just before I got in the car to come to the studio today, and... I got stuck in this heinous traffic jam. My studio is four miles from my apartment, and it took me an hour to get here. I was in the car for an hour. And I was boiling with resentment in the car. And I kept having this thought that, I, that was so depressing to me. And the thought was, the city steals your time. New York City, supposedly the fastest moving, briskest, most exciting place, it actually isn't that. It is a suck and a drag on the most precious resource that we have, which is time. And and it steals it from you because it tells you this lie, which is that you can live here and you can maximize all of these wonderful things that exist here. But really what happens is that too many people have fallen for that lie and we're all trying to grab hold of the bounty in the same moment and on the same street at the same hour of the morning and instead of any of us realizing the bounty we are just all trying to fit into one single lane and honking at each other <laughs> But because I had read this email, I thought to myself, like, okay, you got to don't don't let this honking outrage steal your day. Surely there must be a way to think about this moment differently because you can't get out of it. There's a million cars behind you. There's a million in front of you. You can't just get out of the car and walk away. You have to get through this traffic jam. So what if the city isn't stealing your time right now? What if it is giving you time? What if instead of thinking about what I can't do right now, which is beyond time for the recording session that I had scheduled this morning, what is something I could do right now that I wouldn't have made time for otherwise? And the answer that I came up with is very simple. I listened to the song Roman Candle, which is by my favorite singer-songwriter, Todd Snyder. And I have had this song stuck in my head all week. And I had noticed that it was stuck in my head all week, even though it had been months and months and months since I listened to it. It just popped into my head. And you know how that happens sometimes. A song appears in your head and you don't really know why it's there. And... I thought, well, I'm just going to let myself listen to it. it. It's been snippets of it have been playing in my head all week. What if I just listen to it and let myself hear whatever it's trying to tell me? 
And you know that that thing when you get a song stuck in your head where you can kind of hear, or at least this is what it is for me, I can hear the contours and the shape of the song. I can feel the feeling the song gives me, but I'm not necessarily, if it's a song with lyrics, hearing the words. So when I put Roman Candle on this morning, I, I listened to the words. And the chorus of the song is, when in Rome, they say, shoot Roman candles that way, nobody thinks you're crazy. And I don't know if this is what Todd meant <laughs> in writing those lyrics, but in the context of everything I've, I've been talking about here today, what it made me think about in that moment is sometimes when everything feels overwhelming, when it's all too much, all you can do is act as if. Act as if you aren't overwhelmed. Why on earth they say that only heaven knows Why we turn every last word ever heard on each other over where everybody goes I know I think therefore I am because I am or so I thought I was When in Rome they say shoot Roman candles that way Nobody thinks you're crazy So the other idea that I wanted to talk about today is this value that people talk about in journalism of meeting people where they are. And what I mean by that is it, this, is a, this is a way of describing a really excellent reporter or interviewer that you'll hear from time to time is, you know, so-and-so is such a great interviewer. They really meet people where they are. And I will save for another day my own ongoing tension with myself about whether I would self-apply the term journalist. But the thing about this idea that to be a good journalist, you ought to meet your interview subject where they are, there's something about it that has always not totally landed for me. And I've been trying to figure out why. And I think it's it's something along these lines. I'm going to see if I can express this. I have written down some notes, so apologies if you hear paper rustling. Ideally, when you are interviewing somebody, you're doing that because you are interested in some larger truth, either about who they are or if you're interviewing somebody for a documentary, you're trying to tell a bigger story that this person is in some way a part of. So by default, you as a journalist are bringing your own agenda to this interaction. The goal, of course, is to make this interview subject feel like there is no agenda, right? Like, like the interview is a safe place for them to be themselves, because that is the state in which they will be most revealing. But the thing is, the cultivation of that sense that there is no agenda and that the interviewee is safe to reveal, that's a lie. 
because th- there is an agenda. You as a journalist, you're not the person's PR rep. You're not there to advance their narrative unless you're a hack. You're there to tell your own story. And so without mischaracterizing this person, of course, you are going to edit the interaction that you have with them to serve your purpose. And even if you're not, even if it's a live interview, you know what I mean? And you're not going to go into the tape afterwards and edit the conversation for for length or clarity, you are editing it in some way just by the way that you show up because you have a certain line of questioning prepared. You're noticing and responding to things that are said and and following those threads to the exclusion of other threads. So there's always some amount of editing happening in an interview. And so it strikes me that meeting people where they are is this sort of rose-colored way of describing the journalistic impulse, because what you're really doing is disguising your self-interest. To cultivate this state that we, we call meeting somebody where they are means that you're hiding where you're coming from. You're, you're temporarily subverting or seeming to conceal your self-interest. And I'm not even saying that's a bad thing, but but that is really what's going on. And one of the reasons this has been on my mind is because, as, as you all know, I have been really fixated on this thing that happens where you do interview somebody, sometimes for a long-form interview project like The Midnight Disease or sometimes for a narrative documentary project like The Rumor or Family Ghosts. And then you send the completed piece to them and you don't hear from them. And there's this other valence to that that, that's been on my mind lately where, you know, you hope when you do a show like The Midnight Disease that when you publish an episode that features an interview with somebody, you hope that they are going to publicize the episode on their own channels, that they're going to tweet about it or put it on Instagram or whatever whatever their preferred way of publicizing is, and that in them doing that, you your work will be exposed to the legion of fans that this person has, and that will bring new ears to the midnight disease. I don't know why I'm saying you, I, <laughs> hope for that outcome. And that is not the reason to interview somebody, but it is one of the benefits that I hope for in doing these interviews. And sometimes I send the interview to the person and they don't publicize it. And when that happens, I get very upset. And one of the reasons that I get upset is because I am worried that I did something wrong. But If I'm doing my job, which is to deliver a portrait of this person to all of you that aligns with the values of the midnight disease, it is possible that I have rendered my interview subject in a way that they maybe don't feel comfortable publicizing. Even if I haven't rendered them in a way that's untrue, 
if they think of themselves, and this is entirely hypothetical, I'm not singling any interview subject out here, but if they think of themselves as, say, a musician who writes songs about longing and broken relationships, and in the course of our conversation, it has, you know, they have been revealed as somebody who never was able to communicate with their mom. And we've talked a whole bunch about that. I might be really excited because that's given me insight into the psychology that underpins their songwriting. All of you, hopefully, will be interested in that because it might not be something that the person sings about in their songs. But now knowing about it, we can understand what's happening in their songs a little bit more deeply. But they have the right this hypothetical artist, who, again, like, that truly is not an example from any Midnight Disease interview I have done. I'm, I just made that up for the purpose of illustrating this point. But this hypothetical artist has the right to manage how they are perceived. And yet, by making this document of them that perceives them perhaps differently, I have not done anything unethical. You know, they gave the answers that they gave to the questions that I asked. I followed my own curiosity, and they answered truthfully from their own experience. And the sum of that interaction becomes the portrait. So I haven't done anything wrong. But if I was to tailor the edit of the conversation to suit their self-interest, what would be the point of that for for all of you? I might as well just sit here and read you their resume. Um, I am trying in that conversational dynamic to satisfy my own curiosity about what is behind their work. And I'm assuming that all of you who are here are listening to this show because you tend to have a similar set of questions to the questions that I have about songs and poems and podcasts, and that it is gratifying for you to receive those types of answers also. Like, you, listener, and I, we're the ones who are here for each other in this, in a way, more than the guest and I are here for each other. And so, in a way, it is more my job not to meet the guest where they are, but to make the guest feel like it is safe to enter the psychological arena where all of us, the Midnight Faithful, are. That's the real mandate. That's the real skill that I think I'm trying to cultivate. An illustration of all this that, that occurred to me is everybody who's listening to this, I would guess, probably remembers the kerfuffle uh, from last year, maybe the year before, when Jeremy Strong, who played Kendall Roy on Succession, was profiled in The New Yorker by Michael Shulman. And this profile, and, and Michael Shulman is somebody who is really, really curious about the actor's craft. And so he asked Jeremy Strong all these questions about the actor's craft. And Jeremy Strong gave all these unexpectedly very intense answers about what his craft is, which goes way beyond memorizing his lines and saying them when the camera is pointed at him. It went into the fact that he tries to stay in character for these 
extended periods of time uh, to the exclusion of other people in his life, that he does all of these things to literally put himself in the same emotional state as the character that he's playing so that when you watch the performance, you feel like you're watching a real person and not a representation of a real person. And so Michael Shulman, doing his job, uh, at, you know, followed his own curiosity and asked these questions, got these answers, and then realized that the intensity of Jeremy Strong's practice was sometimes at odds with other members of the cast who just didn't approach acting in the same way. And so then Michael Shulman, doing his job, wrote about the tension between those poles of approach. And so he wrote that all up and he published it. And when you read that profile, you are getting a window into Jeremy Strong as an artist. It's probably not the way Jeremy Strong would present himself. Because to him, the way that he approaches acting is not extraordinary and worthy of remark. He was just answering questions (laughs) that he was asked by somebody who was curious about his process. And so, you know, not to be too petty or reductive here, but like I'm guessing Jeremy Strong didn't tweet about that New Yorker profile. I'm, I'm guessing he didn't run around waving a flag to say, you know, please go read this thing. And that that is in part because he was rendered in a way that doesn't match up with his own self-perception. It doesn't mean that Michael Shulman wrote anything that was untrue. It doesn't mean that Michael Shulman was irresponsible in characterizing things the way he did. It's not that Jeremy Strong would retract anything that he told Michael Shulman, but it is also understandable that Jeremy Strong, to whatever extent he has control over it, probably didn't want to take those words and put them in front of somebody's face and say, hey, read this. This is a really great description of me. So that's all that's going on. Not, by the way, comparing myself at all to Michael Shulman, who is one of the best journalists out there. But thinking about that example helps me to process the, the sting that I feel if I send an episode of The Midnight Disease to somebody who's been interviewed and they don't share it. It seems likely to me that they are experiencing some version of what I imagine Jeremy Strong felt when he read the profile that Michael Shulman wrote. And Michael Shulman probably made Jeremy Strong feel like he was meeting Jeremy Strong where Jeremy Strong was when they had the conversations that they had for that profile. I would be so curious to hear from any of you who interview people, whether for your own podcasts or as print journalists or anything else, How do you think about this dynamic? Or if you're not a print journalist or a podcaster, what does this make you think about? If you are creating something that necessitates the testimony of a subject, what is your responsibility to that subject? My mom talks about this uh, all the time when it comes to photography. Um, My mom is a, a professional photographer and... She doesn't do portrait photography these days as much as she used to, but she talks all the time about how if you're a fine art photographer and you just go out into the streets of New York City and try to capture street scenes, 
You can then send your photographs to a magazine and have the magazine print them as fine art photography. And you could have been walking by Rockefeller Center the day that person decided that the light was really nice hitting the windows of Rockefeller Center. And now your picture's in a magazine. And it that's just okay because it's fine art. Or is it okay? Do these questions feel more loaded in a culture like ours that is systematically devaluing art, repurposing and rebranding it as content that is designed to fuel algorithms on social media platforms, which are ultimately just potential ad revenue streams? Are we at this point in the conversation just smoking doobies in the dorm room? (laughs) Let me know what you think. Midnight at WALT.FM, and thank you, all of you, for listening to The Midnight Disease. I hope that this weekend brings you rest and rejuvenation, and I will talk to you again next week. Until then, keep driving. (laughs) 